Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. This episode is brought to you by The Review Planner. For many of us, performance review season is about to begin. For many of us, it's also a challenge to remember all of the things that we've done during the year. So what happens is our performance reviews become a one-way conversation where our managers are telling us what they think we did during the year And without proof of our performance, it becomes incredibly hard for us to advocate for that raise, promotion, or new position that we know we deserve. So I created the review planner because I always wanted a tool like this, a systematic way to track all of our career accomplishments that are specifically tied to the feedback and growth areas that our managers are measuring our success by. The review planner helps you create a schedule for your career growth and it makes it easy to focus on the goals that you have throughout the year. With email templates, monthly checklists, built-in accountability and reminders, the planner keeps you on track to accomplish your goals and ensures you are spending your time on the things that actually move your career forward. I designed the review planner to help you focus on your career and prepare for your annual review so you can confidently speak up for yourself and earn what you deserve. To learn more about the Review Planner, head to thereviewplanner.com. Again, that's thereviewplanner.com and pre-order yours today. In this episode, you meet Lolly Bowen. Lolly is a program officer for media and storytelling at the Field Foundation. Before joining the field, she worked as a general assignment reporter at the Chicago Tribune for more than 15 years and had a particular focus on urban affairs, youth culture, housing, minority communities, and government relations. She wrote primarily about Chicago's unique African-American community and the development of the Obama Presidential Center. During her tenure, she covered the death of Nelson Mandela, how violence was lived and experienced in troubled neighborhoods, and the 2008 election and inauguration of President Barack Obama. Most recently, she wrote about the election of Chicago's first African-American woman mayor, Lori Lightfoot. In addition, she covered Hurricanes Katrina and Rita and the last gathering of the original Tuskegee Airmen. Before joining the Chicago Tribune, Bowen covered suburban crime, government, and environmental issues for the Times-Picayune in New Orleans. She's been published in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, Lenny Letter, and Longreads. She served as a contributing instructor for the Pointer Institute and lectured at the Art Institute of Chicago. She's a member of the National Association of Black Journalists and is the former program officer for the Chicago Headline Club. She's also a 2007 Neiman Fellow at Harvard University and is a Studs Terkel Award winner. In 2019, she became the first African-American awarded the Jean Bird Urban Journalism Award. She is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated writer who lives on the south side of Chicago, and you can follow her on Twitter at Lolly Bowen. If you had an opportunity to take Lolly's session at The Climb, then you know that she is um, a master of words. She has an eye for putting together stories and, and a perspective that allows us to think about the ways in which we live and work and how that intersects. And so I was super excited to get her for the podcast. I know a lot of you have been asking about how to connect with Lolly. And so as always, grab your I Choose a Ladder notebook, a pen, and your favorite beverage, and get ready to get to work. Hi, Lolly. Thank you so, so much for being a part of the podcast today. 
Thank you, watching. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. And I have to tell you that I'm so honored that you would want to hear about my story. I've been listening to the podcast, of course, and I see this list of very um, accomplished and just very highly accomplished and honored women. And I'm humbled to even be on the list of people that you would want to have a conversation with. So thank you for having me. Oh my, well, first of all, your session at The Climb is one that like we keep getting feedback about. And now I feel like all of a sudden everybody cares about their career stories because you did such a great job like making people feel empowered with whatever their story was, being able to tell that effectively. And so I know I knew that like the larger I choose the latter audience needed to have access to your genius. And so I'm glad we were able to make it work. Um, we'll get to your writing and all of that stuff later, because I feel like the jobs that you've had, not a lot of black women can say, especially in journalism and the accomplishments that they've done the same, we'll get to that. But how did you know that you wanted to be a writer? I feel like a lot of times, you know, you hear about the angst of being a writer and like the different paths that it can take. So like for you, how did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Um, well, I was one of those lucky people who realized really early on that writing was something that I enjoyed and storytelling had a certain power to it. So even when I was in um, middle school, that's when I first started writing and I could see the difference that writing and communicating through the written word could make. Um, when I was in middle school and in high school, as you could probably tell now, I was very soft-spoken. And so I wasn't a, a kid who could get a lot of attention uh, with my voice as it was spoken, but I could get a lot of attention based on what I wrote. And so I was uh, that kid who would write essays, who would write journal articles um, and write content and then get called to the front of the class to recite a poem um, or to uh, stand in front of the auditorium to read what I wrote. And so that empowered me was seeing people take note of what I wrote um, and just learning that I could move an audience that way. So back then in middle school, like what did you think you would do for a job? I wasn't sure. I wasn't really clear on it. Um, but I knew initially I wanted to be an artist, right, as a kid. And uh, people said that was going to be a hard road. So then I began to pour myself into writing because, again, that was something that I enjoyed. Now, what happened to me, which really is fitting um, with the aim and the goal of this podcast, is that uh, when I was about in eighth grade, I met another African-American woman who worked for the local newspaper. And she came to the school. Uh, I was in a predominantly African-American school in the Black neighborhood. And she came there to mentor. She came there with a deliberate intent on trying to locate a protege. And when she opened up that door, I just ran through it, right? Because I saw that as a journalist, she could get paid every week. And I was like, what? Like, you could just get paid for telling stories? And so that's when I really kind of clung to it as a profession and began to learn about all the different avenues and ways that you could get paid from something that you have a passion about. Mm -hmm. And we will definitely get back to that because I think a lot of creatives struggle, right, with figuring out how do you, how, where business and creativity can intersect, right? And so to have, having been someone who's been able to do that, we will definitely talk about that. So, but thinking about like how you grew up, like were, did your parents understand what you thought you were gonna do? Were they like people in corporate? Did, were, did you have the, the support at home to be able to like pursue this once you decided that like 
hey, I found something that I think I can get paid for every week and I can still be creative? Um, yes and no. So my mother wasn't interfering, so to speak, but I was the first person in my family to go to college and kind of pursue a professional career. Um, so no, they didn't know or understand at home. And I think this is so critical. And I'm so glad that we're talking about this because initially when this woman appeared at my school and she began talking to me about writing and kind of stepping into uh, this world professionally, I was not um, as receptive because I wanted a job like everyone else had. I wanted an after school job. And uh, she persisted in telling me that this working, meaning writing and writing for the paper would open up opportunities for me to get scholarships, that it would open up opportunities for me later in life. And at the time, I, I really, I'll admit, I was so um, single-minded and I was so young that I didn't understand that at all. And in fact, watching, I had gotten a job at Home Depot as a cashier. And I told her that I wanted to work at Home Depot because they paid every week, unlike the paper, they paid every two weeks. <laughs> and she compromised with me and said, well, why not do both? Mm. Spend half your time as a cashier and then spend half your time as a journalist, you know, interning and kind of uh, taking on this apprenticeship. And that was what really changed my life was her persistence and her being extremely aggressive about making sure that I understood that this was an opportunity. And she even came to my house. So she met me at school and she came to my house and talked to my mom about it, about planting the seed that would eventually grow. And that's how I got here today. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about mentors and when you talk about sponsors, this was not a soft mentorship. Right. This was somebody who was getting me together. When you talk about a sponsor, this was not a soft sponsor of, oh, I'll write a recommendation. This is somebody who really stepped into my life and decided that, hey, this is a gift I have for you and I'm going to make you take advantage of it. So looking back to that time, because I think we we talk about mentorship and sponsorship. And for some Black women, how tough it is to get somebody who's willing to give you that hard sponsorship or that hard mentorship. So thinking back to that time, what do you think it was about you, young you, that made her decide that like, this is going to be someone that I'm willing to make the investment in? Um, you know, I actually don't think it was as much about me individually, as much as she saw the need to um, create space and make places for young black girls, period. So it wasn't just me. There were a number of young women that she reached out to and that she had made it sort of her priority, her business to pull us in. Um, and then, like I said, plant those seeds. And I, I've learned from that, that it is our obligation to reach out and pull people in. But at the same time, what I've also realized, which is really tough and a sort of difficult pill to swallow, is that when we're identifying mentors or potential mentors, so many times we are looking for people who have a certain level of accomplishments or who have the, the shiny car or who have the jewelry. We want the people who are at the top. And some of those people may not have the time 
or interests to really develop us in the way that we need. And so sometimes we have to gravitate toward the people who are opening up the doors for us, the people who are reaching out to us. And it may not always look fancy, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. So it may not be Melody Hobson. It may be just the secretary in this office, but who has been here for 30 years and really knows how this company operates and really knows the culture and the dynamics within this office, right? Mm -hmm. And if that is the person who is opening up the door and pulling you in and making opportunities known to you, then sometimes we have to check ourselves to receive it. You know, it's almost like uh, in the mentorship slash sponsorship pool, sometimes you wanna be with the cool kids, right? But that, the, that section, that VIP section is so full, you just have to make the best of the people who are opening up opportunities for you. And so this mentor that I'm talking about, um, Jackie Brown, she was at a small newspaper. She wasn't at uh, you know one of the, the fancy labels, so to speak. She wasn't at the New York Times. She wasn't at the Chicago Tribune. She was at the Knoxville News Sentinel. But she was using that role, and she was the only African-American reporter there. She was using that role to open up doors. And if she hadn't opened up that door for me, then I wouldn't have made it to where I am today. Hmm. And I think that's such a good point. And I don't think it's just like around mentorship. It's around networking too, right? Like a lot of times we are so focused on networking up that we forget to network laterally. And those are the people who you're going to grow in your career with, right? And so sometimes the perspective shift helps actually move us along deeper and further than you know, just like having the big names, right, that's associated with, and it's the same with careers, right? I think a lot of times with companies, we chase the big name recognizable company where you're just one in 700 million versus a smaller name that may not be as recognizable, but allows you to grow and learn and move your career in like different ways. And so I think that perspective is super helpful when you're thinking about board of directors and, and all the people who are going to make up your career story. Absolutely. And so think it, so let's talk about the first job, right? So you have your Home Depot job, you have your, you know, your interning. So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. I know you were tired because that's a whole lot to be doing at once. Um, but thinking back to your first professional job where it's like your full-time corporate job, do you remember how you got that job? Yes. So my um, first full-time job out of college was at the Times Picayune, uh, which was the main newspaper in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, and I was offered that job straight out of graduate school. Um, but it wasn't just filling out an application. It was after building a relationship with the recruiter over a pretty much a four-year period. So I went to undergraduate um, at Howard University. And that's where I met, uh, there was a job fair every year. And so I would go to the job fair and meet recruiters and, um, you know, just kind of talk with them, talk with them about my resume, talk with them about my career ambitions. And so I met recruiters there. But the, the great thing is that uh, very early on going to that job fair, I realized and I recognized that I had a lot of growing to do. So instead of lobbying for a job or lobbying for internships, I started to simply ask for feedback on what I could do to strengthen my resume and what I could do to build my skill set. And so my question would often um, lead to or it would be, how can I get to a yes? What do I need to do in order to get my foot in the door in your company? And so I would write down what they told me. And the next time I saw them, I'd have an update 
about how I incorporated that into my work. Um, sometimes I would send a card because this was uh, this was a while ago. So your listeners may not remember the time before we were emailing. Um, now we can do it via email. But at the time, I would send a card and say, "Hey, you told me that I should seek out this conference. I did it. It was you know I learned this and I got my certificate, or, or I finished that, or you said that I needed to work more at the school paper. You know, so whatever advice they would give me, I would follow up with. And this particular recruiter. Um, that was my relationship with her is she would give me advice. She would tell me what she felt that I needed, where I needed to grow. And over years, I continued to follow up with her. And so when it was time for me to graduate, I wasn't surprised when she offered me a job um, because in some ways that I'm smiling and, um, you know, as I reflect on it, because in some ways I was just like, okay, I checked everything off the list. What do you have for me now? <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so that worked out and that worked in my favor. I also want to be um, very specific for your listeners too, that um, again, I, I just, I feel so lucky that early in my um, professional development, um, if you could call it that, uh, at Howard, I got to read Bell Hooks and began to really start thinking about the life I wanted to create outside of the university setting. And so with that in mind, I knew that I wanted to target companies and cities and places that were um, not just friendly, but that embraced Black culture, that embraced Black life in places that I felt that I could create a life. So I invested in relationships, for example, with recruiters in Chicago and recruiters in New York, recruiters in New Orleans. I didn't spend as much time talking to recruiters or companies based in South Dakota, for example, or based in Iowa or um, places that I didn't think could be as receptive or that I felt were hostile toward Black life um, because I knew that I wanted to create a life that was dimensional, meaning that I wanted to have professional accomplishments, but I also wanted to be able to have a personal life and have a religious life and just be able to nurture the many aspects that life entails, that it wasn't just about building a resume, it was also about just creating a full life. Mm. Ooh, got chills about that. Very true, like not spending your time on places you know that you don't wanna be in order to be able to do that, you have to give some thought to what do you want to be and like be flexible enough to change it as you grow and learn, but like having some baseline of, here's a life that I think I wanna create with the information that I have now and how do I actively pursue that? And so think, you talked about your time at Howard a little bit. You talked about how things have changed, um, you know, how the younger people do things now. Knowing what you know now about corporate success, if there was a young Black woman at Howard right now, um, what would you say to her that she should be taking advantage of, she should be doing now, that will help make that transition from Howard to corporate a little bit easier? Um, well, one, I do think that building and investing in relationships is extremely important um, and sincerely investing in those relationships. So not just, um, as you pointed out earlier, networking up 
and looking at who's at the top of the ladder, but also looking at who's beside you um, and thinking in alternative ways of how you want to really accomplish your goals. Um, and so as you were speaking, watching, I thought a lot about Issa Rae and the way that she has been able to uh, build pretty much a um, entire empire, right? But it wasn't in a traditional route. And she was able to pull people who were next to her and they were able to rise together, right? And these were the people that she was able to rely on. And so she may have not had, I don't know what her resources were, but she may have not had uh, Shonda Rhimes' phone number in her cell phone, right? But she worked with the network that she had. She may have not had Oprah Winfrey's cell phone number in her contact list, but she worked with the people that she had next to her and was able to build relationships that are now extremely meaningful and powerful, right? Um, and so I would not discount building relationships with the people who are beside you and, and people who are maybe one step. It doesn't have to be the CEO. It doesn't have to be the president of the company. In fact, it should probably be, it will probably be more deep and more meaningful if it are if it is the people who are one step above you or who are right beside you. Mm -hmm. um, and then thinking to your career, right? Like you had you had a really long. I feel like your um, career is not normal for someone in your age range because like you stay with one company for a really long time, right? Like a really long time. Um, but how how did you manage to? I guess in you know telling stories, you chose to tell stories about a very specific group of people and you could tell that like, there's commonality in your work. But I think a lot of times people get bored or they get like they're, they feel stuck or complacent. So for you, how were you able to, to grow and nurture your creativity being with the same company for so long? Mm -hmm. um, well, for me, I was with the same company and um, you know, the work that I did still varied and I was able to find some variety within the work because one, I um, was able to change the topics that I reported on and my career, and as I talk about it, it's gonna sound a lot different because it is not that sort of typical corporate uh, career. But as a reporter, as a journalist, what I did to kind of give myself some variety is I always wrote about Black life, I always wrote about Black people, but I could find variety within us because we are not a monolithic people. Also, we're located in different parts of the city. And so I would challenge myself to not always write about the South Side, to sometimes write about the West Side and mine into stories there um, as well. Sometimes um, I would challenge myself that it's it's not going to be a story that is about anecdotes and people that I need to have some statistics and do some analysis of records, uh, pull some data uh, to go into the story. So I was able to find some variety within the work. It was never monotonous. It was always really um, different and thoughtful, if that makes sense. Um, also covering breaking news. Um, sometimes meant that I was sent out to cover something that happened immediately, but then I could pull back the next day and try to think of, is there anything deeper to explore here? So I was able to give myself variety within my work. Um, I'm smiling because I'm also thinking about um, when I was in the newsroom, I covered Thanksgiving Day Parade uh, for years. And one of the ways I would challenge myself each year is I would go to the parade. It's the same event, right? It's the same event every single year. But 
every year I would challenge myself to approach it from a different perspective. So this year I'm going to write about the people who handle the balloons and I'm going to go to the parade. And instead of talking to the crowd, I'm just going to talk to the people who are actually handling balloons in this weather with the wind, who who are walking for hours and hours and see what it's like for them and tell the story from their perspective. Or this year, I'm going to tell the perspective strictly from children under nine years old. And so I would approach, you know, each assignment, even though it was supposed to be monotonous, I would try to approach it from a different aspect, a different angle, just to challenge myself so that I wasn't falling into a routine. I hope that that makes sense, because I think that, that um, you know, sometimes it can appear that the work that we're doing is monotonous, but it doesn't have to be, particularly if we give ourselves challenges within the work. Right. Um, and I think this is important to say, too, that um, sometimes we get seduced re regarding how things look on the outside. So from the outside, it looks like this is monotonous work. But what's happening on the inside is that I've challenged myself to write this from the inside out. Right. So there is nothing you could tell me now about the Thanksgiving Day Parade. And let's face it, this is work that has to be done. So even uh, if you are in a corporate structure, if you're at a company, you still have to fill out the financial reports, right? This is, it has to be done. But the way that you do it can have your own finesse. It can have your own personal touch, your own uh, different style that you bring to the work. And then, so thinking through your career, has there ever been a time where you maybe felt stuck, right? Where you were ready for a change the change maybe didn't come in the time frame that you want. Um, we just sent out an, um, an email about being at career crossroads, right? And the perspective around that. So if you can think to a time where you maybe felt stuck and what did you do to get unstuck? I think, especially with COVID, a lot of people are, you know, trying to, to make decisions around what their work, their life's work and those things are gonna look like. And there are some, some of our listeners who really feel stuck. Like they feel like they've been, ready for a promotion for three years and they like they can't seem to do that thing or find that resource to move them in that direction. So for you, if you felt stuck, what have you done to get unstuck? Um, when I have felt stuck and um, when I have felt that I am stagnant, I try to look within myself and really figure out what I need to be learning in this moment. So in the quiet time, so to speak, at work, when it is starting to feel monotonous, I think about, well, what are the skills that I need to be reaching out to figure out, to learn, um, that are gonna help me grow either professionally where I am or professionally elsewhere. Right. Um, and so in those quiet moments, that becomes the time when I can uh, look toward professional development books, um, workshops. Now we're lucky enough to be able to do these workshops online, um, researching coaches, because uh, there are career coaches that can help you kind of get unstuck, uh, fellowships. Uh, again, professional development programs, um, leadership programs, and really just trying to branch out and figure out what is going to help me grow professionally to the next level that I want to reach, right? And, you know, I'm just going to be 
um, straightforward about this. Not every company is going to be open-minded about shattering these glass ceilings. Right. So there comes a point, I think, that you really have to meditate for yourself if this is the best place for you to rise to the level that you want to rise to. And if it's not, then doing a serious interrogation of what you need in order to move to that level someplace else. Mm -hmm. And that could be um, a variety of things. You may need to sharpen your budgeting skills. You may need to learn how to manage a budget. You may need to learn how to manage people. Uh, you may need to learn how to actually build the scaffolding to a company, right? If you're gonna make a jump somewhere else. But you may also find that if you wanna make a jump into leadership, for example, that you need to really, really build a strong network. Because if you move to another firm, and you were placed in a leadership position, a lot of times that can mean staff turnover. So who do you have to bring in that's an accountant? Who can you bring in that can sell ads? Who can you bring in that's a fundraiser? And so all the people that you may know in your network, for me, for example, may all be journalists. But if I'm gonna step out of the newsroom in the news environment and really step into a management role, well, then I need people with a variety of skills. And so maybe I have to shift my thinking and really think about, well, okay, if I can't move into management uh, at the Chicago Tribune, for example, and I wanna move into management at the Sun-Times, who do I need to know, have really, really strong bonds with that I can bring with me? Because I'm gonna need someone to raise money who to take care of the books, who can manage and edit, who can write, who can sell us on social media. So I think that in those moments where you feel stuck, it really offers the opportunity for us to interrogate our skill set and decide what we need to build. Mm. I hope that makes sense. It does. It absolutely does. And in thinking, so I was thinking about something that you said earlier. So as a Black woman who was a journalist who decided to cover Black stories, do you think that there, like that was a limiting your career options, right? Because I think a lot of times there is this, um, this um, fear, like a, a fear to pigeonhole yourself too much or like to, to be too niche. So as you thought about, you know, covering black things, like do you worry about stereotypes? Do you worry about any of that stuff as you made decisions about how you would use your talents in your chosen industry? No. Um, and you know what? It's, it's odd because I started doing this long before it was, um, you know, popular or trendy. I knew, uh, I think because I came from Howard, that I wanted to write about Black life. Um, when I was much younger, my goal was to eventually write about Black life around the world. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And so I decided uh, with the, the guidance of mentors that I could approach every assignment like a foreign correspondent. Mm -hmm. So I didn't worry about getting pigeonholed because again, I just kind of set the bar for myself that uh, as outsiders may look at it as monotonous within the work itself in the way that I approach doing the work and the way that I approach uh, these stories is 
still with this sort of a uh, unique high level benchmark that I've set for myself. Mm -hmm. um, and when I go to talk about my stories, it's not, uh, they're not stories that have been sold to me from a press release. These are stories that I've gone into communities, established trust and really mined in order to make them a uh, robust and have depth and, re and revealing um, and reflective. So I, um, I didn't worry as much about being pigeonholed. And in some ways, you know, I, I'm smiling because I think I may have been a little overconfident because at the time I was so committed and so um, had so much passion about the work that even though it wasn't necessarily popular or popularly embraced, I felt that eventually the world would catch up. And if it doesn't, I've done my job because I've done work that I know is fulfilling. Mm. And I guess like, so how do you do that when it's not mainstream and it's not popularly embraced? And it's a story that you, you know, spend a lot of your time invested a lot of your energy in, like, how do you keep going to keep doing the work that you know is right, right? Because we talk about in a lot of these corporations, not all of them are ready to like shatter those glass ceilings. And so you have black women in those spaces who are passionate about the work, passionate about, um, you know, about doing what they're there to do, but they feel unseen, right? Like, or they feel as if the work that they're doing is not necessarily as valued as their counterparts who are maybe choosing to focus on general market things or things that are for people of color or, or just whatever that label is. So how do you how do you motivate yourself to keep doing the work, even if you are unseen? Yeah, I think watching that, um, and that's such a wonderful question. All of these questions are, but I, I do think that we have to set goals for ourselves. And so when you go into any company, they'll have their benchmarks. They will have uh, their goals and uh, their sort of uh, measurements that they have for you. But then we have to set some benchmarks and some measurements for ourselves, right? And those are our own accomplishments. And it may not mean much, quite frankly, to anyone else, but you know it, maybe your close friends know it, your family know it. Uh, for me, when I started out as a journalist, I um, was committed to not telling stories that I considered uh, just showed Black people as being broke down and broken. Um, and that may not mean anything to anyone else, but that was the commitment that I made to myself, kind of like the commitment Chad Bozeman made to himself, right? Is that he was not gonna portray black people on screen in a certain perspective because he just didn't find it becoming, it doesn't advance the narrative, it doesn't advance our people. And so I made that commitment to myself. Now, you don't win any awards from that type of commitment. Uh, you may not get any type of recognition. People may not know, but I know it. And so that became my benchmark for myself. And for me, hitting that benchmark is just as important as the metrics of how many people read the story, you know, as it is to the paper. Reaching these benchmarks for myself and my own goal marks are just as important as reaching the benchmarks and the, the metrics for the Field Foundation. Um, and so I think that we, one, have to set those benchmarks for ourselves and then have our personal board of directors hold us accountable to them. Right. And so, again, it's not, I, you know, it's for us, particularly as black women in the workplace, there's a certain duality that I actually think we're lucky to carry. And so we have that that we have that that um, 
set of standards that our company has set for us. But then we have the privilege and the pleasure of having this set of standards that we can set for ourselves. And so we have to hold ourselves accountable to those standards too. Yeah, but let's not let's not mess around. You were out here winning awards, right? So yes, but sticking right, like, let's be clear on that. You out here making history and you know, so don't let this humbleness fool you. She was still out here killing it, right? And I think that there's the reason, well, one of the reasons is because you decided to stay true to your principles. And so you could execute in a way that was always excellent because you weren't going outside of yourself for some, you know, something that you didn't necessarily believe in. And so how does it feel, because I'm never going to win any awards on any kind of storytelling, but how does it feel to have your work recognized at such a high level in and being able to do that in a way that felt good to you? Like, how does that feel? Um, it is very humbling and it's a huge honor, um, but I take it with recognition. Oh, I'm getting all emotional. I take it in with recognition, knowing that I'm not the first person to uh, execute this work. I'm not the first black woman to execute work at this level. It's just the timing lined up with the work that I was doing. Yeah. And so I stand here because a hundred black women reporters stand behind me who were doing the same exact thing at levels even higher um, and, and doing it at a greater risk. Mm -hmm. But the time was just not on their side. So mm -hmm. when you think about an Ida B. Wells Barnett, right, who, who essentially, um, not essentially, she did, she created the blueprint for investigative reporting. And it took the world, what, 80 years to catch up with what she was doing and recognize her genius and so knowing that I you know I'm humbled I'm honored but this isn't for me this is for all the black women who have stood behind me who have done the same work the woman I mentioned to you earlier Jackie Brown right I'm doing everything that she taught me to do that she didn't get recognized for so it feels good but it also but again I, I know I'm just standing here because the time caught up with me. Um, one of the things that I use to motivate myself in all the work that I do is that recognition that there have been so many African-Americans who have worked and labored and accomplished and whose name don't, names don't get called and who don't get recognized because the time didn't catch up to them, um, but that they did it anyway. And where would we be if they didn't record our stories? Where would we be if they didn't record our images? Where would we be if they were not devoted to doing the work at low pay and, you know, with no awards, with no national recognition? Um, I hope that makes sense. I was, you know, kind of thinking about like, uh, we talk about Gordon Parks, but there's so many uh, Black photographers who took images and they weren't hung in museums, they didn't get published. And now we're looking back and, and really grateful, right? Because they are showing us a, a form of life that we weren't, um, that, we, that we didn't even recognize was important until now, right? Or when you think about the black artists like Elizabeth Catlett, who you know, didn't become a millionaire from her work, but where would we be if we didn't have her sculpting our image and saying that we belong in museums, even when the museums won't accept us, mm -hmm. right? Sam Gilliam, who was doing work, um, again, uh, abstract work and showing that a black man can paint at this superior level and we deserve to be and have our art in the finest of institutions, even if they don't know it yet. 
right? So those, those are the things that keep me fueled. Mm -hmm. um, and then like, I, I think a lot about the shoulders on which we stand, right? When we, when we think about, you know, a lot of the things that I think are, that we take for granted now um, are because people literally work through some unimaginable, at least for me, circumstances to make sure that we, that we could do it. And like, that there was a story to tell. Um, as you think about how we tell our stories and our career stories, like what are some things you think are important, right? We talked about this a little bit at the climb and, you know, a lot of times we, you know, we just want to power through, right? There are some of us who want to be kind of like flies on the wall. Like, I don't want anybody to see me. I don't want it. But like, we know that that's not how the professional world works. And if people want to have that level of success, sometimes you have to be able to not necessarily loudly, but you need to be able to articulate your journey in a way that's impactful. So as we think through the stories of the past and the stories that we're currently writing, what are some things you think should be cognizant of? Oh, that is a really good question. Um, you know, what I reflect upon quite a bit is um, when and where I enter, as uh, Paula Giddings uh, phrases it. And what I mean is, where in this room do I want to position myself? Some people can stand at the podium, and then there's some of us who are standing behind that person at the podium. And so what I mean is, is really kind of tapping and doing a personal interrogation of what your skill set is, what you have to offer, where you want to be. And you don't have to be the loudest voice. You don't have to be the person standing at the podium in order to be influential. You could be that person who wrote the speech. You could be the person who put the financial plan together. You could be the person who um, built the internship program so that there's a pipeline to people having this position. Um, and so I think it's important to identify as early as you can um, and revisit it often, what you want your career story to be, look like, and how then you can model that, right? Um, as you know, living in Chicago, we have people whose names and images that we recognize immediately because they're in the forefront. But behind Mayor Lightfoot, right, behind Tony Preckwinkle are these teams of people um, and that are the actual ingredients that are the people who are actually getting this done and powering this person forward. And you have to kind of decide, what do you want your story to be? Are you that person who's in the front who's doing the talking, or are you the person who's steering the conversation and saying, you know, we need to talk more about criminal justice issues. I'm not the person who's gonna lead the conversation watching, you're the person, but I'm gonna give you all the pointers, I'm gonna give you all the tips and all the research so that I'm having an influence even when people don't necessarily see me having an influence. Mm -hmm. And as someone who has um, had access to and talked to lots of people who are at the podium. What do you think is some, because we all, everybody thinks that they want to be at the podium, right? Until they have to be at the podium and they're like, yeah, no. And I feel like it's the same way with, with work, right? Everyone thinks that they want to be a people manager until you actually have to manage people. And you're like, this is terrible. Like, why did I aspire to this? <laughs> and so for people who, what, what do you think we don't know about the people who stand at the podium? Um, I think that we don't know that they get their character questioned um, their integrity, their just 
personal selves interrogated all the time because they are the face of what happens, right? They may not be the ultimate decision maker. It may not be their quote, brilliant idea that they have to sell, but they are the face of it. And so there are benefits to be in the face, but there are also a lot of consequences, right? And so, you know, I imagine um, that when you are Mayor Lightfoot, and particularly now in this moment where we're talking about raising property taxes and reinstituting red light cameras, everywhere you go, you have people who have something to say to you. And that may not even be your grand plan, right? This may be the plan that your budget officer came up with or that one of your financial directors and you're the person who has to represent it and sell it. Right. Um, so that's the tough part about leadership is that you are the person, not only are you the face, you are the you're the accountable arm for whatever happens uh, in this organization, whether it's your decision or not. And when you don't agree, still having to usher these decisions forward, you know, that's the, the tough part about leadership that I think you're right. We don't really examine. Um, and that's in part because we like the spotlight, we imagine that it means all of these benefits. We imagine that fame means and translates into open doors and opportunities. But we also have to remember that it also means accountability accountability, and accountability at a higher level. Mm-hmm. And I think it, with a lot of things that, we're, that we romanticize, right? When you have that vision, it's all of the good stuff. It, like when you think about marriage, it's like, the love and all those things it's not the snoring and the clothes on or whatever the thing may be or like if you think about you know being on tv all the time but you don't you know think about the people talking about your hair not looking right when you gain two pounds like all of the negative stuff i think we just we for our own sake right it's better to like paint the rosy picture um because it's true like with responsive with leadership if it goes great it's your teams win if it goes wrong, it's your responsibility, right? And so how do you balance the two of those and think about them strategically before you get there so that you're developing the skills necessary to not cuss people out on national TV when they're talking crazy about you. And it's like, I didn't come up with this mess. My budget director did, like, go talk to her, right? Like, how do you, how do you, if you know that's what you're aspiring to, how are you intentional about developing the armor and the skills that are necessary to be able to be, you know, effective and graceful in those moments? Yes. When we first started talking, I said, you know, you were with the with the Tribune for so long, and then you switched it up on us. I'm like, wait, what? So how have you known when it's time for you to move on to your next opportunity? Like, what signals do you have um, internally, right? They're your own that it's like, all right, Lolly, like, it's time to try something else. Yeah, I um, I I knew this question was coming, and this is a, a difficult and challenging question to answer. Um, but here's what here's my attempt at trying to answer that question. Um, part of the reason I stayed at the Tribune for so long is because I really enjoyed my job, and I enjoyed what I was doing, and I enjoyed the people that I worked with immensely. Um, It was lovely in the sense that as a storyteller, I was never told no. I was often just asked when, meaning when are you going to produce this? (laughs) So I had a lot of um, flexibility there. And the wonderful thing is that I think 
Um, and these are feelings, not necessarily facts. But I think that when you are given the opportunity to indulge in your passion and really shine and do a good job and you deliver with the, the excellence that you can, people see that and then they're attracted to you to offer new opportunities to you. Um, and so it's kind of... Um, it's this sort of weird juxtaposition, right? That you're at your job, you're doing so good. And every few days there are people knocking saying, hey, do you want to come over here? Do you want to come over here? <laughs> you're like, no, I'm happy. I'm, I'm like, I'm glowing where I am. Um, I'm listening because you're supposed to listen when people knock at the door, you're supposed to answer. Um, and so, you know, it, what I find is that when you are when, and when you talk to people who are struggling and who are very vocal about their struggles at work, who are very transparent about some of the misery they're experiencing, it becomes a challenging for them to make a step outward, in part because they're not necessarily generating the goodwill that you need in order to attract new opportunities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're shining, when you're flourishing, when you're doing well and you're doing your work with passion and with a certain amount of joy, it attracts opportunities. And at least that's what was happening for me. And there just came a moment where one opportunity seemed like the right one for me. And so I feel really, really, you know, I'm not naive. So I feel really blessed and lucky that that opportunity came along and came along at the right time when um, it was time for me to make a shift and time for me to make a move. Um, but, you know, there were opportunities that were coming to me. And I think it was because people on the outside saw that. I was um, easy to work with, that I often brought a sunny disposition. And this was intentionally, because as you know, watching no job is perfect. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's Eckhart Tolle who says that it's not the, it's not what you're experiencing that causes pain. It's that you keep pushing against it. Right. So going along with the flow and not spending so much of my energy pushing against the tide gave me a certain public disposition that attracted opportunities to me. Mm -hmm. And when the right opportunity came along, I couldn't say no. Um, and it's interesting because I used to talk to my um, mentors and I still talk to my mentors about this, uh, about the nervousness and the anxiety I would feel when opportunities came to me because I knew that soon enough there's going to be one that is too good to refuse. Mm -hmm. And you start seeing that happen in your professional life. That it's like, oh, well, I could turn this down because it's it can't compete. But then after a while, it's like, oh goodness, now that you know, now they're putting me in a situation where I would be a fool to turn this down. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It's true. Um, and so then, as we talk about that, right? Like, so you've won crazy awards. You you know you've done your work has been seen everywhere. You are now at the Field Foundation. Do you ever face imposter syndrome, even though you've accomplished so much? And if you do, how do you push past it? Um, absolutely. I think we all uh, struggle with imposter syndrome, um, particularly as Black women, because we don't necessarily reflect the mainstream. Uh, we have not seen images on television or in magazines that often reflect us being in this 
space, whether it's a corporate space or a business space. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, face and deal with imposter syndrome. Um, and I've had to, in order to push through, kind of form my own meditations, right? Um, one is reminding myself that it's my world too. Mm. And that I belong here. And so, um, you know, it's interesting because we can face these feelings anywhere. It could be in your corporate space. I know that's what we're here to talk about, but you can face it at the gym, right? You go to the gym, everyone's fit and skinny, but you know what? It's my world too, right? Um, the other thing is, and I heard, uh, I actually picked this up from Patrice Gaines more than 20 years ago when I was a college student. Um, I may be in this room and I may have a soft voice, so to speak, meaning in terms of the power dynamic. It may look like I don't belong here, but I'm here. I'm going to take my seat and I'm going to be myself because I'm here for a reason. But at the same time, there are places in this city, in this county, and in this world where I could take the people in this room too and they wouldn't be able to find their way out of a box, right? They wouldn't be able to, to figure out how to, to get to the back door, right? So, and what that means is that there are spaces and places where I have authority. Mm. There are spaces and places where I am the key voice. And that may only, that could only be in your bedroom that may be in your apartment, but nevertheless, there are places where I am the authority. And so just because I'm in this space right now, I belong to be here just as much as anyone else does, right? Um, yeah, and so I meditate on that. I remind myself of that. And quite frankly, sometimes it tickles me. Sometimes it makes me laugh, right? That you went to Yale, you went to Harvard, you grew up on the North Shore, your family is six generations of wealth. And I came from public housing and I'm the first generation college student. And here we are together. Both sitting next to each other. <laughs> okay? Right. Ain't, this world, right. Ain't this world something? Here we sit right next to each other. <laughs> oh, life has a really interesting way of making things just kind of end up where they're supposed to be. So la uh, last question, I guess. Well, it's a two-part question, then we'll get to the lighting round. Would you consider yourself an ambitious person? And if you do, how do you define, how do you define that for yourself? Yes, I definitely consider myself an ambitious person, um, but I define my own ambition. And um, so again, it, and that's what I encourage people to do at all times, is that it doesn't have to reflect the world's goals, that it should reflect what's important to you. So mm -hmm. I'm ambitious in uh, trying to reflect my values of humility. I'm ambitious and trying, really, really trying to be radically generous. Um, and so, and that means that translates to manifest in giving and not expecting things in return, giving and not uh, uh, following up, like watching, did you, did you spend this the way I, t I wanted you to spend it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, opening up opportunities, writing recommendation letters, uh, uh, stepping back when opportunities are open for me and mm -hmm. someone offers me the podium and saying, you know what, I'm going to pass the mic 
to watching. So yes, I'm, I'm definitely ambitious, but it doesn't necessarily translate or look the way that we tend to often define ambition. Um, and I guess that the second part to that question is, I would assume that you, because of your disposition and like how soft-spoken you are, you probably have the opposite effect of like people, for me, everybody's like, oh, she's an angry black woman. Cause I don't, I'm not quiet. I'm not any of those things. So how do you, how do you maybe handle people taking your soft-spokenness and your, your, um, your demeanor as like a weakness, like as a weak point, it was like someone that they can push over or walk over because you are not going to be the person who's going to be the loudest one in the room. I know a lot of people, when they think leadership, they think loud and boisterous and and that's just natural. That's naturally not who you are. So, how do you manage that for for the people who interact with you? Oh well, you know, I know where my sword is, right? I know what my sword is, meaning I know how to do battle and how to fight. And so, that's not necessarily yelling across the room, but that could be writing a memo, right? That could be filing litigation. That could be uh, taking steps legally. So that's how I make sure that I have a certain amount of agency and power in the room uh, is because I'm not going to just tolerate or just talk about it. That I'm going to follow up with um, written words, where I'm going to follow up with possibly a meeting, um, and that essentially I'm going to empower myself mm. as much as I possibly can. Um, and not every battle has to be waged publicly, right? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the, the public battles can look as if a person won, so to speak. Um, but there are so many battles that are being waged clo behind closed doors and on paper and in the courtroom uh, that so many times we are not necessarily exposed to, but that are continuing and that go on. Um, and so for me, again, writing has always been my outlet, but it's also been my weapon. And it's been um, the way that I've been able to advocate for myself. Hmm. And, I, and you know what, I want to say something else too about that um, is because when I talk about, you know, knowing where your sword is, I think that we have to be very strategic and also knowing what the tools are within the workspace, right? So there are going to be those people who talk out of turn, who, um, as you said, have a, a presence, right? Um, but does that make as much of a difference as when you do your company evaluation, you writing down what your expectations are and having it recorded at all levels. That I expect a pay raise of 10% by the end of this term XYZ. That's a lot different and that moves a lot of different wheels than just being talkative in your cubicle. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that makes sense. But yeah, every workplace has its tools and its devices. And learning how to use those tools in order to elevate yourself is absolutely critical. What you write in your evaluation, how you evaluate the company, when you decide that you're going to uh, begin sending your resume out to other places, and how you make that known right? Who do you go to to negotiate with in terms of your salary package? Because sometimes you're talking to the wrong person, right? Like you're talking to, one of the things that I realized is that sometimes you're talking to your immediate supervisor and she's scared to go talk to the boss, 
on your behalf, right? So do I need to go, should I even have this conversation with you about my pay at all? When it's not really in your hands, it's not really your decision. And as much as you manage me, the truth is you're afraid to broach this conversation with the decision maker, or should I go directly to the decision maker? Is this a conversation and a confrontation worth even having with management or do I need to take this directly to human resources? Because the way human resources is going to respond to this is a lot different from just having a conversation within the cubicle space. So no, you can be soft-spoken, you can be polite, but you can also be aware of the tools that you have at your disposal. Hmm. And then I'm sorry, last question, I promise, because I'm thinking about somebody very specific when I'm asking this question. And I know she listens. And so hopefully this will help. But what would you say to someone who is a phenomenal writer, wants to be a writer, would be a, a bomb writer, but is afraid to take that step? Like, what would you say? Um, well, you know, one of my good friends, Natalie Moore, says that if you want to be a writer, you have to be naked. Right. So you have to be willing to be transparent and out in the public. Um, if you want people to read what you're saying, um, you have to face the possibility that you'll be rejected. And so you have to make a decision for yourself. If you want to be in that space, this is the risk. And it's a risk, but it's a risk that's worth it. Um, you know, because what you have to share is so powerful and so meaningful to a specific audience. That doesn't mean that it's going to be widely received. It doesn't mean that it's going to be widely embraced, but there will be somebody who needs to hear what you have to say. So I would encourage that person, but I would also say that, you know, it's a risk, but it's a risk worth taking. It's a risk, but it's a risk worth taking. I hope you hear that and you know that I'm talking specifically to you. I'm watching. If you don't mind, I know this is the end, but there are just two things that I'd really, really like to add if you don't mind. Not at all. Go ahead. Uh, so the one thing is that I'd like to refer people to an essay that I come back to over and over again, and it's by Toni Morrison. It was um, published in The New Yorker back in 2017, and it's called The Work You Do, The person you are. And it lists four tips um, about shaping your personal self as you shape your career. Uh, and again, I just return to it uh, because as we know, Toni Morrison is the, the god, the goddess, the supreme being of writing. And so to have her words on how you shape a life and a career for yourself, I think are so important. Um, the other thing is, is that I know we talked about mentorship earlier, and I just want to Remind your listeners that mentorship is a two-way street, that it's not also what you get, it's what you can give, and to really think about what you can give in your relationships to others. Um, Khalil Gibran Muhammad blew my mind the first time that I met him because as we were just having conversation, it was as if he was calculating in his mind how he could assist without me even asking for it. And the reason it was so powerful to me is because I think so many times as black women, we don't necessarily know what to ask for. And so when people come to you and they're telling you their story, it's important that we listen, I think, listen and think about, well, what do I have to give to this person? Is it a contact? Is it some editing skills? Is it a, um, a book? 
Is it some knowledge? What do I have to impart to this person? And so as a part of us lifting as we climb, as a part of us living our radical professional generosity, to approach these relationships, not only from a what can I get from watching, but what can I give to watching that is gonna help her get to where she wants to go. So really quickly, can you define for me in your words, what does radical professional generosity mean? Um, it means, Goodness. So I can um, think of it in terms of how it's manifested. But what it means is that you are investing yourself in the success of someone else. Mm -hmm. So you are uh, putting their success. Um, and the reason I call it radical is because you put their success and their accomplishments before your own. Um, and so again, instead of approaching professional situations with what can I get, how can I get ahead on this ladder? It's more so how can I push these people up the ladder, right? How can I get them in places where they are successful and help them build on their skill set? How can I invest myself into them? And so again, that means that sometimes when you're offered the podium, turning the or turning the podium over to someone else so that they have that opportunity to have their voice heard. Because if not for you, who else is going to give them that chance? Mm -hmm. Sometimes that means that if a writing opportunity comes my way, and it could be lucrative, but I don't need them all, right? And watching is not going to get this opportunity unless I turn it over to her and show what she can do. And not only am I going to turn it over to her, I'm going to offer to edit the piece for her. Right? I'm gonna to offer to promote it on my social media. I'm gonna invest myself in her success. And so we see models of professional generosity all around us, not only on, on the outside, but we see people do that for us. And so we have to make a commitment to doing that for other people too. Does that make sense? It does, it makes perfect, perfect sense. Perfect sense. Um, Just this real quickly, and I know we're in this, this sort of odd time of shutdown and COVID, but sometimes it means just bringing someone with you where you go. You know, I have access to the Pulitzer celebration and they said I could bring a plus one. I'm not bringing my boyfriend. I'm bringing watching, right? Mm -hmm. I got opportunity to go to this gala and they're gonna be these business leaders. I'm not bringing my sister even though the food is going to be good and the wine is going to be great, I'm going to bring this little sister from work who otherwise would not have this opportunity, right? Talk about that on, um, I forgot which person it is, but so for me, on my personal board of directors, that's Jack, Jackie Robinson Ivy, right? Jackie makes sure that every room that she's in where she feels I need to be, that I have a seat at that table, at her table, right? And she, it doesn't take anything away from her, right? She takes joy in sharing the spaces that she thinks will benefit people within her network, within her circle. And like for Jackie, it is an intentional choice to make sure that the people in her lives are top of mind and she is creating spaces in the spaces, right? She, when Jackie gets a seat at a table, she pulls up a couple of chairs and she makes sure that those chairs are filled with the right people. And I think that that is a level of, you know, radical professional generosity that I think of um, when I think of a person within my personal board of directors. Absolutely. And I think that it's easy to take that kind of radical professional generosity for granted because it feels so good, right? You're like, I'm here. I'm here. I get to be here because Jackie opens these doors for me. But then the challenge becomes, how do you do that for the next little sister, the next little brother? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, how can you show up for them? Uh, okay. So the lightning round questions, don't think too, like, too much about it. This is the first thing that comes to mind. What's one piece of career advice you wish you'd gotten earlier in your career? 
Um, oh goodness, I know you said don't think too hard about it, but since it's just one single piece of advice, um, you know, I just, I wish that I would have been more deliberate about getting to know the people around me and their ambitions. Um, because again, as you begin to rise on the career ladder, you realize how many different people with different thinking and different mindsets that you need around you. And so many times it's more comfortable to be around people who we think are like-minded. Um, but what that does is that limits our growth and it limits the, the skill sets that we have access to. So I think if that was one thing that I could change or redo, I would have been um, a more aggressive and more deliberate. I did it on a lightweight level. And what I mean is this, in the newsroom, journalists be friend journalists, right? Black journalists, uh, befriend black journalists. And here you are at a company where you have people who sell advertising, who deal with circulation, who deal with event planning. And half the times we don't even reach out to those departments or bother to get to know them because it feels so quote unquote different. Mm -hmm. So now I wish I would have taken more time to get to know people in those different career fields. Mm -hmm. What's one book that you could read over and over again? Um, so I actually have two, if you don't mind, because I'm a reader. Um, one is Old in Art School by Nell Painter. And the second is the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, by I don't have time to read anything else as long as that book is. Like, I, the autobiography, like, I feel like that's a book that takes a lifetime to read. It is so large. It it's is good, but it's large. It is. Um, but both of these books, the commonality with them are they about are is that they are about people who have made extreme life shifts and who have evolved um, professionally, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And so I think that's how I was able to kind of get through Malcolm X. Right. And I get through it over and over again. I probably come back to it every other year. Um, yeah, because, again, we meet people, this is, so these are feelings, not facts. Um, we meet people who we can see are stuck, right? Not necessarily stuck in a career, but stuck in a mindset. And to evolve from a person who was uh, essentially selling drugs on the street and hustling to a person who was on this uh, supreme spiritual level, uh, it takes such a radical shift and a very deliberate attempt at changing your mind of evolving, right? Um, and that's the type of person that I strive to be. Now, I'm not saying that, that in two weeks I'll be a you know, Buddhist leader, but I want to be able to accept the evolution of life as it comes. And so both these books, Nell Painter uh, in her 60s as a very, very accomplished and decorated, celebrated historian decided to go to art school and become an artist, a fine artist. And so that journey, that that shift is so radical, right? But it was something that was a calling within her. And then she documents the steps to doing that, right? And how uncomfortable it felt and how awkward it was. So that's, that's what has pushed me through these books over and over and over again. Um, and then the last question is, we know that all decisions about your career are going to be made when you are not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you're not in the room? Um, I hope people say that I execute with um, sophistication and with radical professional generosity. 
um, I hope that they will say that I um, approach everything with a level of humility, intentional humility, um, and that my focus is on the work and not me as an individual. Mm. And on that note, thank you so much, Lolly. This was amazing. Um, Y'all can stop harassing me now about getting more Lolly in your lives because she's here. Um, but thank you so much for your time, Lolly. No, thank you. Now you all can see um, why everybody at the summit was in love with Lolly. Um, but you all know that I like to end each episode with three gems that I took, even though there's always a million and my notes always look crazy. Um, but the first is being um, cognizant of the fact that we stand on the shoulders of people who did the work, but whose time just was not um, right in, in, in essence, right? And so making sure that we take advantage of the opportunities and the time and the work that we are allowed to do because of those people. Um, the second part is not everyone needs to be at the podium, right? Taking stock of what it is that you need from your life and from your career and deciding intentionally if you if your role is at the podium or if your role is being the person behind the person at the podium because both of those people are influential just in different ways. Um, and I think the, the last part that I'll talk about is knowing that there are spaces and places in which you are the authority. And just because you are sitting in a space right now where your expertise may not be the one leading the conversation or leading the charge doesn't mean you don't belong. The spaces that you are in, the places that you are in, you belong there and just know that um, your authority shifts depending on the place and the space that you're in, but it does not mean that you do not have authority and that you do not belong. Um, as always, if you wanna keep the conversation going, you can join us on Instagram at I Choose The Ladder or on Facebook at I Choose The Ladder. Until next time, thank you for listening.